Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. I wish I would have started the book of Ecclesiastes with these words. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Words of delight. Delight. If you preach through the book of Ecclesiastes and you don't find delight there, then you're not preaching it right. And I hope over these last four months that you found delight. I hope that it's been words of delight for you and help for your soul, even the tough stuff. I hope it's been words of delight. Sermon title this morning is The End of the Matter. The End of the Matter. We'll finish Ecclesiastes this week and we'll start Philippians next week. We're going to start in the book of Acts actually next week because we're going to see where the church of Philippi got planted in the region of Macedonia. And so that's where we're going to be next week. And we're going to continue right on. We're not going to do a sermon series between the two books. We're going to march right into the book of Philippians. And we're going to continue with the theme of delight or joy through difficulty, and we have a lot of difficulty in our world, but none of us in this room right now are in prison where Paul was, and he wrote words of delight and joy in the midst of being chained, and so we're going to fight for joy in a difficult and unique season, and we'll start that next week as we continue kind of a similar similar theme. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, before I start, I forgot, Micah Malore's birthday is today, and he is watching right now. Micah, happy birthday. He is 16 today. And so it's a big, big birthday for him. Pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. I remember when I turned 16, I was driving a 1989 Dodge Daytona that we bought from my neighbor for $2,000. And I thought it was sharp. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to hear from you. Uh, Lord, I never want to get over the fact that we're flipping this book open and we're hearing your very words to us. And I pray that we would see the supernatural reality of that every single week, that we would not miss the blessing of that, the blessing of looking to the left and right and in front of us and behind us and seeing people that you have also redeemed that are our family, blood-bought brothers and sisters, being able to gather together in a community and encourage each other. We're not living this life alone. And you have ordained it to be a family affair where we're together in this thing, that you have purchased us individually, but you've purchased a family And we come together to feast on your word, to hear from you, to respond to you, to be changed by your word. God, help us to model to the world what repentance looks like, what a life pursuing the lordship of Christ looks like. Help us to model to the world world what submission to our creator looks like. So God, we just want to respond appropriately. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. We trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, there, is a, there is a great tragedy of a wasted life, and let me just talk to you about a wasted life real quick, because I'm going to say some names of men and women that you've heard of before that wasted their life, even though the world would celebrate their life and say they've done a lot of amazing things, and in fact, there are some things in their lives that we can credit to the common grace of God and thank God for, but these are l- wasted lives nonetheless. Robin Williams. Robin Williams lived a wasted life. Robin Williams made a lot of people laugh, and a lot of people experienced God's common grace to them through his ability to make other people laugh. He did a very good job, even in roles like Goodwill Hunting, where he played a psychiatrist. He was a very gifted person, 
and gifted in a way that brought a lot of happiness or a lot of laughter, even gut-level laughter to a lot of people. But Robin Williams wasted his life, and it's a very, very sad story when you hear how he took his life. And it, it, it's just, it's a tragedy every way you look at it. And he was a man who did not give God credit for the gifts that he had and did not submit to the Lord, and in turn lived what the writer of Ecclesiastes would say, he lived a vain life. He just lived a life that was not satisfying, it was not fulfilling, and in the end it did not honor the Lord. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, did, in the world's estimation and measurement, a lot of great things. Uh, she was a, a woman that was celebrated by so many, but she lived a wasted life. She wasted her life. And she did not fight for the rights of women. She actually fight to continue to keep women in chains. And she fought for little women to be killed in the womb and little boys. And as the world celebrated her life, there was this internal conflict of, of wanting to be uh, sorrowful over the fact that an image bearer died, but also this, this side kind of feeling of the oppression of women that she advanced in the name of liberation, hopefully will be suppressed. And what we want is real womanhood. What we want is little women to not be killed, but to be respected and to be alive. Thomas Sowell is a man that I've learned a lot from, and his life just, uh, I'm going to say reeks, but in a, in a positive way. It just reeks of God's common grace in, in a positive way. Uh, Thomas Sowell is a, an economist from UCLA. He was a professor at UCLA, and he has written on a myriad of topics over the years. A brilliant man. He's 90 years old, and I absolutely love learning and listening to Thomas Sowell. But Thomas Sowell is not a man who gives credit and glory and honor to God. And all the good that he has done, apart from submission to the Lord, is a wasted life. It's a vain life. Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, wrote a lot of plays and did a lot of, again, things that we could celebrate in culture, uh, advancing theater, and understanding how to write a play, and doing so in a way that kept cap audience captivated. But he was a man who did not honor the Lord, and lived for the praise of people, and therefore lived a wasted life. Aristotle was somebody who advanced philosophical ideas, thought deeply about truth, but in the end was a man who did not honor his creator. And today, uh, the Sol the Sol Solomon's going to tell us that instead of wasting our life in our old age, growing old and living for the pursuits that we want to live for, um, honor God in your youth. Honor God today. Don't waste another day living for your own purposes, and if you're a believer, don't live any more days in unrepentant ways. Anyone you know who lives to an old age without knowing their creator has lived a wasted life. Even if they've done much good, even if they advanced certain things through the common grace of God, as stated, they've wasted their life in vain pursuits. Do not live your life for temporary things. Rewards, accolades, accomplishments, affirmation, earthly pleasures, riches, fame, sexual pleasure... All of these things that Solomon pursued, in the end, he said, vanity of vanity. If you don't escape, if you don't see above the sun, if you don't see the purposes of God in this world, then everything is vanity of vanity. It's like chasing the wind. You chase it and you never hold it. You never get it. You run after this promise and that promise only to get to that promise, have it in your possession and realize it doesn't come through for you. You don't want to get to the end of your life and wish you lived it differently. 
We're going to get to that here in a little bit. There are so many people who get to their deathbed and say, I wish I would have done this or that differently. And Solomon's going to warn you, you don't want to be like that. Today, today, change. Repent today. You don't want to get to an old man or an old woman and be a bitter old soul wishing that life would have went differently. Now is the time for change today. Believers, we don't want to live our lives in Christ in a worldly, unrepentant, selfish way. The trajectory of our lives should be more and more selflessness, not more and more crotchetiness. All right, verse 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and years draw near in which you say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember your creator. When you're young, before the evil days, because evil days are coming, before the years come and before you get to that point in life where you're saying, I have no pleasure in them at all, remember your creator. Um, no matter what stage of life you're in right now, there's, there are certain people who say foolish things like this. I have no regrets in my life. I have no regrets. And, and I understand sort of what they're saying. I, I think what they're saying is that God has redeemed them, and the where, like where I am now, as I look back on my life, I'm thankful for all that God did in my life, even through my mistakes and through my silliness and through my sin. God has been faithful, and I get that. But everyone in this room has regrets, and you should not be ashamed to say it saying, I wish I would have done this differently. I wish I would have done that differently. And here's the thing. Ten years from now, five years from now, one year from now, you'll look back on your life, and there'll be some aspect of your life, and you'll think, I wish I would have done that, done that differently. And through the, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, today we can draw a line in the sand and say, whatever thing in my life right now that I've been delaying repentance on, I've been delay, delaying turning to God, I've been holding on too tight, why don't I just let go of that thing? And give it to the Lord. Trust the Lord with it. Why don't I live, instead of being selfish in this matter, why don't I live selfless? And why don't I minimize those things that I'm going to grow old and regret? Why don't I turn this and give this over to the Lord? Why don't I repent of this sin or that sin right now? Why don't I change by the power of the Holy Spirit right now? Don't waste any time in repentance. Repent in whatever you need to repent of. Can, can we just be honest? Especially as you've gotten older in your life. As you look back, didn't you do some silly things when you were younger? Are there things you regret? A lot of things you regret. Solomon's saying, you don't want to get old and live a life that you'll regret only to wish that you would have remembered your creator in your youth. So right now, is your youth five years from now, ten years from now? You're younger today than you're going to be tomorrow. You're younger tomorrow than you're going to be 20 years from now. And some of us will be here, we don't know who, but some of us will be with the Lord in 20 years. Remember your creator and your youth. Solomon has got to the end of the matter we're going to see here in a little bit. And he's already begun to talk to the young men in finishing up chapter 11. And he's crying out and saying, just don't waste another day. Remember your creator in your youth. Remember your creator before things get bad and before you get old. Look at verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain in the day when keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and when run rises up to the sound of the bird and of the daughter, all the daughters of song are brought low 
They are afraid also of what is high, terrors in the way, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and the desire fails. There are two things here, and we got metaphors and images that, that Solomon uses to portray these two things. Life is going to get difficult and hard, and you're going to get old. And so he has these pictures, these descriptors for us. Darkness and evil are coming. In the day, for instance, when the keepers of the house and the strong men are scared and bent over. There are bad things coming, and there's going to be a point at some time in our life, and it says here the image is where the keepers of the house or those who are the security, the security team is going to tremble at fear, and the strong men are bent over. The image here is, is like of a hunchback. Like there's a time when really strong men are going to get weak. And some of the strongest men that we've known were earlier in, the younger, in their younger years. They could just, you know, feel like they could pick up somebody and just snap them in half. There's a point in which even really strong people lose their strength. The shoulders start to sag. The back starts to go out. And even the strong men begin to bend over in pain. When those who are supposed to protect you can't. When the grinders of wheat are few, it says when the grinders cease, when those who are making the food can't do it anymore, when the food is low, bad times are coming, when those who look through the windows are dimmed, is a picture of eyes going bad. And this is interesting. I've got an astigmatism in my left or right, I think both eyes. And I didn't realize this until a few years ago, but anymore, it's like my, my eyes are still pretty good. I don't have to, like right now, I'm not wearing my glasses or contacts. I tried contacts and it lasted about two days. Never doing that again. Um, and I wear glasses here and there, and I just kind of get tired of it, so you know, whatever. But I can't hardly read. I can't read for very long if I don't have my glasses. Or if I'm seeing anything, I just got to squint, and, and you guys know what I'm talking about. That your eyes begin to go dim. It just catches up to you. I mean, there there's, comes a time. You may not have to wear glasses until you're 40 or 50 or something like that, but then you wear glasses, and then you're like, my goodness, I need bifocals now. And so then you're like, you know that thing that goes around your ear and that your glasses, that's kind of handy. And so then you're wearing this thing that your glasses are right here. And you're like, you know, you know pocket protectors, they're kind of handy as well. Like there's just things that start to happen when you get older. It's like, you know, you care about comfort and not style. You know what I mean? You don't care at all. So you're like, those Velcro shoes, you know, those are pretty, those, those are pretty comfortable. And, you know, sweatpants, uh, forget jeans, I'm going to have a rotation of sweatpants. Before the almond tree blossoms is an image of an older man, an older woman turning gray. Reference to a full head of gray hair. Before the grasshopper drags itself along, it's a picture of losing more mobility. Uh, joints, with every passing year, begin to hurt more and more. Uh, joint pain for people can be very, very difficult. Um, Again, some of the strongest men end up hobbling along. It's the image of the grasshopper just barely being able to pull itself. Um, men and women, you're, you can't stop the aging process. You just can't. There's no, you can eat healthy, and you can run, and you can do your best to, to prolong it, but you're going to get old. There's no way to get around it. Um, you're just, it's just going to happen. It's inevitable. I'm 37 this month. Um, when I was 24, I thought 37 was old. <laughs> you know, your perspective changes, Vicki. Like, you, you never think you're in the old category. It's always like young just goes along with you. You know what I mean? Like, 
still, still very young. Life's hard and you'll get old. So remember your creator in your youth. Remember your creator in your youth. Know God. Humbly walk with him. Look at 5b. Oh, forgot something. Desire is zapped away. Uh, when you're young, you have desire for almost everything. Passion. And in our society, we do see that there are some passionless people, people without direction. That's certainly true. Um, but zeal has a tendency to fade the older you get, where you, you just passion, even between a marriage, a husband and wife, the older you get, um, when you're 60, 70, 80, 90, there, you, you can just see, okay, I don't have the energy to go do what I could do 10 years ago. You know, to go mow the yard could be a massive task where you used to love the spring to come because you're itching to get outside and do the landscaping, and now all of a sudden, huh, I don't want to go do the landscaping. Desire fails. What Solomon is saying, before that desire goes, remember the creator of your youth. Don't spend all your zeal on worthless pursuits. Give your zeal and your passion to the Lord to be wielded in the way that he wants to wield it. Desire. Remember your creator in your youth because, verse 5b, because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all this vanity. Remember him because man is going to his eternal home. Mourners will go out in the streets. There'll, there'll be people who mourn your death. There'll be people at your funeral. Even if you grow really, really old, my grandmother was 97, and she had a pretty large funeral for 97. There's some people who outlive all their friends and acquaintances. That can be a very difficult thing. When you get into your 90s, and all of your friends, and, and they're beginning to die around you, and I watched this with my grandmother, it can be very sad because you, you're all, your, all your friends, literally everybody that you, you lived and grew up with, they're all gone. And uh, you get into your... If you get into 100 years old, you're at your funeral, and there's not many people at your funeral. It's just your family because nobody knows you. Everybody that you knew died. Men are going to go to their eternal home, and mourners will go to the streets. Here's the truth. Death is coming. Death's coming. Death is coming. Remember your creator before death comes, before you stand to meet your maker, before everything breaks and you go into the dirt. Remember God before your spirit stands before him, or keep living your vain life in your vain ways. The conclusion, leading in verse 8, after all the things that are broken, the wheel being broken, the, the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, and the spirit returns to God who gave it, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. If you live your life for all pursuits that are broken pursuits, then you will live your life in vain. You will waste it completely, Living for yourself is a wasted life no matter what you accomplish. That's why there's so much danger in the self-help, self-care, self-love movement. There's so much danger and so much of it sounds right. But you will waste your life away putting yourself first. You will waste your life 
You will never attain or get to what you want, ever. Death's coming. So we're brought to a conclusion. Verse 9, all the way down through 14, concludes the whole matter. And I love that Solomon just says, I've looked at it all, and here's the end of the matter. But first, we hear about the work of the preacher. And somebody now begins to pin and telling us about the work of the preacher. Look at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Besides being wise, the preacher taught the people knowledge. He studied and he arranged many proverbs. He took great care and intentionality to arrange and study these proverbs, to be able to curate and give you, through his pen, through his brain, through his heart, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these words of delight. And he arranged them together and he put them into books and he pinned them on papyrus into scrolls that we later have right in our laps before us. He did this with honor and he wrote words of truth, delightful words. And if, again, if we've gone to this book and we've not seen these words of delight, if we've not seen the truth, then we've seen it incorrectly. This is what, this is what, this is what Solomon tried to do. I want to give delightful words. I want to give words of truth and of wisdom and collect them and give them to the people to be encouraged by. I want to help them live their life. I want to help them not waste their life. And I want to do this in a delightful manner. This is what Solomon did for us. What do these words of delight, these truthful words, do? Verse 11, these words of light, words of life, these words of delight, these words of truth do something. They accomplish something. The wise words. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed on the collected sayings, are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And of much study is weariness of flesh. Wise words are like goads. They keep you on the path. They provide direction. Okay, so, you know, a goad, uh, people that have worked on farms and uh, people know that agrarian life, a goad is something that you would stick into you know, you can even, like, uh, your spurs, that could be a goad to keep your animal going in the right direction or spur one on in the right direction to correct a path that's going wayward. And so into your animal, you would use goads to keep them on the right track. It would provide direction. And the words that God gives us are like that. They warn us. They, we're, we're walking this way. We hear the words of God. We hear these collected sayings. We hear the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're beginning to walk in hedonism or a crazy, ridiculous way in a way that's selfish and it is not God-honoring, and then these words, they come along, and they're like goads, and they correct us, and they say, okay, no, that's a foolish pursuit, I'm gonna, that's, that's not what I want to do, that's not what God wants me to do, and so that's what these words accomplish, they're like, they're like goads, or they're like a nail that's firmly fixed, and so if you think of like a, like a handhold when you're climbing, if there's any rock climbers out here, when you're, when you're climbing a rock, you're looking for a, a firm and a fixed place, a place to put your hand that won't break, that won't fall, that's stable. And the words of God are like that. They're like a nail that's firmly fixed. It's going to provide stability. You're going to be able to hang your hat there. You're going to hang your life there. They're going to stay. It's not going to move. It's like a nail that's firmly fixed. The words of delight that Solomon gave us are truthful words, a place that, a place that we can find direction and stability. And so when everything's going crazy around us, we can put our nose in this book and we can find direction and we can find stability. 
And the Holy Spirit meets us there and takes his words that he wrote and brings them to life to us afresh and anew. That's why you can be studying the same book, or the same chapter, or the same verse for the 10,000th time and see more to the meaning. It doesn't mean it changes meanings. It's got one meaning, but you see more in that meaning and more applications in that meaning than you've ever seen before. Oh my goodness. I've never seen that, and I've studied that my whole life, and I've never seen that. It's like words of delight this time, thinking like, oh, I should have started there. I should have started the book saying these are delightful words. These are words that Solomon arranged for us that we would have truth in a delightful way. Even when we come to a difficult passage in Ecclesiastes, these are for our delight. It's for our good. The scriptures, so yeah, this week I put on the internet, I don't know if you saw this or not, but it just I was, I was reading and thinking about several things about the Bible reading challenge and thinking about how the world sees reality. And it just kind of dawned on me, the more we're in the scriptures, the more we're going to question the world. But we're more, the more we're acquainted with the world, the more we're going to question God's word. The more you're just aware, what, what are you acquainted with? Where, where, what's the culture that you're, like, that's seeping into your bones? Is it the TV? Is it the media? Is it the wave of popular opinion? Is it getting people to like you on Facebook? I don't know if you've seen my posts recently. Um, they're not to win fans. They're to confront people with the truth. To confront, confront other believers. Do you believe what God actually says or not? Or you just say that, yeah, I believe in the authority of scriptures. It's very intentional, very intentional. When to use technology to evangelize, to tell people, bow to King Jesus. He loves you, and you'll waste your life if you don't. The scriptures provide stability and direction, and the more acquainted you are with them, the more you'll look up and see, this is nuts. This is crazy. And the more you're out here in this you're going to look at the Bible and you'll think, this is nuts. This is crazy. What, who, where are you, what, what, where, what are you acquainted with? What's the culture that you're swimming in? Put your nose here. Swim in the scriptures. Know the scriptures. Hear from God. They provide pr protection. They provide, excuse me, direction and stability. Pr protection would have been a good rhyme. You could have got like a good acronym or something like that, you know, or a... Uh, uh, whatever the phrase is when you got rhymes that go together and then you build work, whatever. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> Protection, direction, stability. They're given by one shepherd, Solomon says. This is a recognition. He's turning his attention to God and saying, these are not simply my sayings. They're given to me by the one shepherd, the shepherd God himself. Solomon recognizes the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture, that he is not just simply writing words that he thought about, phrases that he thought about, wise tweet-like sayings that he wanted to put down in a book, he recognized that the God of the universe was speaking through him into the pages of Scripture. These words are God's words. Yes, Solomon put pen to paper, but it was God writing through him. Every single word in the Bible is red letter, spoken by God himself. Used, he's using sinful men to write these words, but these are good, holy, and right words from God himself. So when we say that Solomon said, we're actually saying and recognizing, I hope we are, that these are the words of God, given by one shepherd. Look at verse 12. He gives us, again, some direction. My son, beware of anything beyond these. 
again, beyond the inspired words. Of making many books, there is no end, and a much study is weariness of the flesh. Um, beware of going beyond inspired words. Now, Solomon has made many books, and he understands even as a bookmaker and a book writer, there's never any end to this. It's hard work to put it all together. It's not necessarily an indictment of, of, of making books, but it is a warning of anything beyond what he has written, the inspired words. Uh, Christians are people of one book. Now, we read many books. It's not wrong to read many books. But we are people of the book. The Bible is the book that we are devoting our entire lives to. We are, we are spending time with the Christ we see in there. We're not missing Jesus in the text. We're communing with Jesus in this book. The Holy Spirit, we, we come to the Bible and we're communing with God. And we're studying this book the rest of our life. Not collecting dust. We're, we're opening it up and reading it the rest of our life. We are people of the book. Yes, you can read some other books, but let me just tell you, if you are more acquainted with other books than you are in the Bible, you're going to find yourself tired. They will not give rest to your soul like this book will give you, like the God of this book will give you. These are his words, delightful words, truthful words, and I'm telling you, weariness is coming if you're more acquainted with any other books than this book. Yeah, read them. But don't read a book over and over again every single year that's not this book. We love the Bible because we love the words of God. We love communing with Jesus there. We don't want to make the mistake of not communing with God as we read the Bible. Don't be like the Pharisees who just memorize it but don't love God. If we come to the scriptures because we commune with God there, the Holy Spirit just speaks to us and opens our eyes and, and we... God, thank you for speaking to me. And friends, you know this. There, there are times in your life where the scripture has felt dull to you and boring. And then you know that there's seasons where it's like, oh my gosh, I, I open the scriptures and it's like things are jumping out at me like crazy. How have I never seen this before? That's what we want. Keep going back to the Bible. Be weary, wary of running to uninspired works and staying there. The study of the philosophy of men brings weariness to the flesh. We cannot find rest in the words of men, but we can find rest in the words of God. It's crucial. All has been heard. All has been accounted for. Solomon has painted us a beautiful picture of life as it is under the sun. He's looked at everything, and he's going to tell us. This is it. This is the end of the matter. I've thought it through. Got direction and leading from God himself. This is the end of the matter. Look at verse 13. This, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. When I hear this is the end of the matter, I, I do, I feel like, ooh, I feel like leaning in. This is a great way for Solomon to... Bring us the truth because I, I get pulled up off the edge of my seat. I say pull up and I backed up. I get pulled up and I want to lean in. Like, okay, the end of the matter. Tell us what it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. Okay, let's explain. Fear God. For the non-Christian, I love breaking this down like this because it's helpful for me and I hope it's helpful for you. For the non-Christian, you need to be afraid of God. Actually afraid. I'm not talking about just awe. Here, I'm not just talking about 
the way in, Christ, in which Christians are afraid or fear God. I'm talking about you actually need to be afraid. You could die today. Really, you could die today. Friends and family members you know, your neighbors, coworkers, people in your life that do not know the Lord, they could die today and they would die in their rebellion. Um, and God is keeping them alive right now and he's keeping you alive. The breath that's in your lungs is a gift from the God of the universe. God does not owe you the next breath. You hear that? Every breath that everyone takes on this earth right now is a gift from the Lord. And he doesn't owe anybody else, anyone in the world, another breath. Every single, if we see it, is a big sign of God's grace. He is good to all. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He is kind and benevolent even to people who give him curses. They have no idea that the breath that they're taking is from a holy God. He brought you here today. How about that? If you don't know the Lord here today, and I think the majority of us in this room believe that, or born again, saved, trusted in Christ, there may be somebody. You need to hear that you need to be terrified at the thought of meeting him without being ready. Terrified of meeting him without being ready. And the fear of God should do something in a person. That terror, that fear, should be scared to death of him. It should do something. A proper fear of God should lead us to faith in God, crying out to God. And Christians who fear God, by grace, we don't stay in terror. We trust God. We appeal to him. We cry out for him to save us, the God whom we fear is also the God whom loves us. And get this, through trusting the God we fear, we then love the God we fear, and we know and experience His love, and we want to obey Him. Fear ends up leading to joyful submission to a God who loves us. Um, when we see what God has done for us, it changes everything changes everything. Um, the fear of God ends up leading to repentance, to faith. And it does something to us. Um, we don't fear in the same way because we're not fearing punishment, but we still fear the God of the universe knowing that every breath comes from him, that he is kind and benevolent to us, and we honor him as the king of kings and the lord of lords. He at any moment of any day. I remember standing at Blue Spring in uh, Missouri, Big Spring in Missouri at Current River. And my friend Jeff, we were standing there together, and he said, God, in just a second, that water that comes out of Blue Spring, I don't know if you've ever been there before, but it comes up, and it's so much water. I mean, millions of tons of water per second. Brandon, you've been there. I know some, a lot of you have been there. And it fills up, the amount of water could fill up Bush Stadium, old Bush Stadium. It, it would take like 27 hours or something like that. It would fill it all up with water. That's how much water is coming out of that every single day, every day, 24 days or 24 hours a day, every single day, for on, on and on and on and on. Just, just raging up out of it. My friend Jeff said this. I'll never, never forget it. He said, God could dry that up in a second. Just bone dry. We couldn't stop it. We can't stop that. We, 
we had to do something, if people had to do something, they'd have to divert it. They couldn't dry it up. No amount of technology could dry that thing up. But God, in a second, could dry that thing dry as a bone. God is powerful. And we who are right with him, by his grace, want to keep his commandments. Do what he says. Newsflash. That's the Christian life. Obey. Obey him. You going to do what you want to do? You going to stomp your feet? Follow the course of the world? Live out your selfishness? Or obey God? Fear God and keep his commandments. Obey. Obey the Ten Commandments. Obey the New Testament command of loving God and loving others. Obey every command we have in the New Testament that God gives us. Get wisdom from the Proverbs. Obey God's commandments. What God says goes. What we have in our world today, even in so-called Christianity, is a bunch of people stomping their feet and crying like little babies, not wanting to obey God's commandments. Wanting to do things their way. Just not making a point at all. They're simply acting like children. And friends... The people of God should know better. It should be a done deal to us. Whatever God says goes. I, if he says it, I'm, I'm going to obey him. I'm just going to obey. I'm not going to... Is it going to be hard? Absolutely. Talking about obedience is so much easier than obedience. <laughs> Talking about it is the easy part. But then living it, when push comes to shove, when tensions rise... Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for it. <sighs> okay. God, help me. Help me. I don't ever make mistakes. It's easy for her to love me. <laughs> Why is it so hard? Th thank you. I mean, for people who are listening on the audio, if you're listening afterwards, that was a joke. <laughs> um, I want to obey God, that's what Christians want to do. We want to obey God, fear God, and keep his commandment. Get wisdom. Learn from Solomon. Obey. That is not legalism. Hear me again. Obedience to God's commandments is not legalism. Striving to obey him. Now, if you don't, if you don't see Jesus, the commandment keeper, love him and thank him for his grace. Thank you. Thank him for imputed righteousness. If you're trying to earn salvation, that's legalism. But if you love God and are thanking him and are so gratuitous in your heart for his mercy to you, and you just simply say, I want to obey, friends, that's rigorous Christianity. That's just obey. That's Christianity 101, I should say. Keep his commandments. Obey him. That's what we're called to. And it's not legalism. It's what children do when they love their father. They want to obey. When they have a heavenly father that sent his very own son to save them when they were dead in their trespasses and sins and they know it, they really want to obey him. Okay. What he says goes. God's going to bring every single deed into judgment. Look at verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. What a tremendous conclusion. Every public deed, every secret thing, good or evil, God will bring it all into judgment. You are not getting away with it, whatever the secret is. Whatever the secret is, you're not getting away with it. 
Whatever the secret is in the world, whatever evil, vile thing that's been done in the dark corner, they're not getting away with it. And for all of our questions about why things are the way they are, why they aren't the way they aren't, the conclusion here is so helpful to us. When we don't understand, we can know that every single deed that's evil in public and private will be held to account. Everyone will stand before a holy God, and he will judge their works. Turn to Revelation, Revelation not Revolution, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15. We're going to look at two books, and then we're going to finish the book of Ecclesiastes. God is going to bring every deed into account. We're told about it in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 14, or 15. We're going to see two books, two books, actually at least two, probably more than just two. Starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, plural, books were opened. Then another book, singular, was opened, which was the book of life. So we have books, we have the book. Everybody got it? Books opened, and then we have the book, the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anybody's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Books were opened. There was another book opened, the singular book, the book of life was opened, and those whose name was not in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. We get back to our list from the very beginning. If there was no repentance or faith, there's going to be a day that Robin, Robin Williams, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Thomas Sowell, Shakespeare, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, anybody you can name, down through the history of the world. They'll stand and give an account and the books will be opened up and their life will be led, both the public actions and private actions, their life will be read before a holy God and he will judge them accordingly. And anyone whose name is not found in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is your name there. Is your name there. The book of life is filled with names, names of those who have been born again. Names of those who are purchased by Christ, his very own blood. Names who Christ lived a perfect life for, perfectly fearing his heavenly father and obeying his every command. Doing what the book of Ecclesiastes tells is the end of the matter. And he did it for sinful people who, through all of our striving, even through the inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit, throwing through, flowing through these veins, fail to appropriately fear God and keep his commandments. Jesus did it for us, that our names could be written in that book of life, that we could be counted righteous, that we could be clean, that we could be welcomed into the joy of our maker the book of life. Jesus feared God and obeyed those commandments that your name might be there. And you're going to be welcomed home, welcomed in to the heavenly places, home because of the work of another, Jesus Christ. 
Or, or, and this is true of every Christian or non-Christian, there's only two people. There's sheep and goats. That's it. There's only two kind of people in the world. Those who know the Lord and those who do not. And there's going to be a myriad of people. As many as the stars are in the heavens, as many as the sand that's on the seashore, that are going to be welcomed in because of the work of another. Whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. But there's going to be some of our family members, neighbors, and co-workers. And those books are going to be opened. And although there'll be myriads of people welcome in the joy of their maker, there are going to be myriads of others, millions upon billions of people who will be judged by their work, the works written in the books, those books, and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Fear God. Turn to Him. Obey Him. Your life will never be the same. If you know Him, friends, He saved us. Why would we delay obedience? Why would we delay obedience? Why would we hold on? Why would I delay obedience in any area of my life. You know, yesterday, and I'll close with this, yesterday I was grinding meat. And I realized how weak I am because after grinding meat with a meat grinder, my lats are sore, my biceps are sore, my triceps are sore, my whole body is sore from grinding meat. I needed to hit the gym, apparently. And one time I... I was doing this, and I'm sore as I'll get out, and it's, the seal breaks, and it falls over, hits the pot, and it's like this Rube Goldberg reaction where this pot of meat that's ground flies in the air and lands on the ground. Veins popping out of my neck. I said, Dad, come it! <laughs> Family in the room. The boys are like, went running to their mother. <laughs> Why did I do that? It was sin. It was sin. I got to get that under control. I got to get under control, and there's areas that you need to get under control. Why would we delay obedience any longer? Let's pray. Lord Jesus.